Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PolMeps Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Joining us today is Fanar Haddad, author of the brand new book, Understanding Sectarianism, Sunni-Shia Relations in the Modern Arab World, published by Hearst and Oxford University Press. Uh, Fanar, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Very happy to, to be doing this. So tell us about the book. What was the major uh, contribution you had in mind when you set out to write this book? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I've been working on the subject for a while, and uh, I, I think that even though the field has uh, grown both in qualitative, qualitative terms and quantitative terms, and there's been vast improvements over what we saw, let's say, 10 years ago or so, uh, this, the field still remains truly problematic, which is why the uh, title of the book is Understanding Sectarianism with Sectarianism in Quote Marks, uh, because one of the fundamental sort of contentions of the book is that the phrase sectarianism has long since lost any coherence or meaning whatsoever. So my uh, idea with this book is to sort of try to provide an alternative framework for studying sectarian dynamics um, and for sort of, um, yeah, uh, and, and, and doing that entails firstly jettisoning the phrase sectarianism and shifting our focus onto sectarian identity um, and I presume you're going to have questions about this, but very briefly, uh, the, one of the problems with how sectarianism, the phrase is approached, is that it, it almost always is presented as meaning just one thing, thereby condensing what is inescapably a multifaceted subject into some monodimensional or monocolored uh, uh, um, uh, aspect. And so if we are going to take sectarian identity, we need to avoid making the same mistake as well. Uh, so the other contention of the book is that to understand sectarian dynamics, you need to first understand that sectarian identity means more than any one thing. Um, and it's itself a multifaceted uh, uh, subject, and it's a multifaceted phenomena that we have to understand on its multiple dimensions. Now, when, when you talk about the problems with sectarianism, it, it kind of goes beyond just that it means lots of different things. Uh, you identify a whole range of problems, analytical problems, normative problems, political problems that come from this highly loaded term. Walk us through that a bit. What's wrong with the way people talk about sectarianism? Okay, so first, as you said, there is the issue of multiple, multiple meanings, multiple assumptions. Uh, and you get this, I'm sure you've seen this in conferences and the like, so we'd be sitting on a panel and one panelist would be talking about the subject, assuming that it means or it refers to the institutionalization of sectarian cleavages a la Lebanon and, and post-2003 Iraq, whilst another panelist would approach the subject under the assumption that sectarianism uh, refers to doctrinal incompatibility and bigotry and the like, whilst another views it as a question of uh, Saudi-Iranian uh, 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 rivalry and the like, and there's and on and on and on it goes. Um, so there's the issue of that lack of coherence. And uh, when you couple that with the negativity of the term, uh, this is where a lot of the practical problems come, come into this. Uh, and you see this in how the term is used to justify, to whitewash uh, Orientalist approaches to the region, to sort of... Uh, um, also sort of uh, uh, present religious identity in the uh, Middle East as somehow different from elsewhere in the world. Um, there's also the issue of how uh, that sort of opaque uh, quality of the term, coupled with its negativity, allows it to be used in a way that silences uh, political opposition within the region. 
Mm -hmm. um, we've seen that in how, for example, the Arab, Arab uprisings were dealt with once they reached the Mashraq, um, places like Bahrain and Syria. Um, and we see that time and time again, before 2011, before 2003 as well, uh, whereby uh, political opposition from, from political outgroups, if they happen to emanate from, from, from the sectarian other, let's say, uh, are silenced, vilified, delegitimized as sectarian, uh, which is an, an ill-defined term. Um, but you're not saying that sectarianism is overstudied. You're saying that it's wrongly studied. I'm saying that by framing it as an issue of sectarianism, we are, we are sort of, it's analytical misdirection. Yeah, because right. Think about it this way. No matter what uh, uh, definition you take, no matter how you choose to define this insufferable term, it's inevitably a facet of or a function of sectarian identity. Uh, so that should be the starting point. Uh, whether it's, you know, I mean, think about the various definitions, how it's institutionalized, how it's constructed, how it's exploited, how and so on and so forth. It all comes back to sectarian identity. And so what I propose in the book uh, to avoid, I mean, here's another problem with, with the study of sectarianism, uh, to, to what, how to contextualize the role of doctrine and beliefs vis-a-vis mm -hmm. uh, -vis, uh, political interests and economic interests and the like. And you see a polarization in the literature uh, with, you know, rarely an effort to sort of bring these two elements together. So what I propose in the book is that sectarian identity operates on four dimensions simultaneously, on four uh, uh, interlinked dimensions. And these are the doctrinal dimension, uh, the subnational, so that's the dynamics within a single nation state. Uh, thirdly, at the level of the nation state, so in terms of how sectarian identity interacts with nationalism and national identity, and finally, on a transnational level as well. And by sort of dissecting it in that way, we can start better sort of identifying what aspect of sectarian identity we're actually concerned with or is actually relevant when people use that catch-all phrase, sectarianism. So once you've shifted the lens towards, towards sectarian identity, I'm glad you brought up this question of, of the doctrinal issues. Because one of the issues that I see a lot in, in the analysis of sectarianism or sectarian identity is this question about whether there's anything unique about sectarian identity as opposed to any other identity. I mean, is it operating similarly to just ethnic identity or national identity? Or do you think there's really something distinctive about uh, the sectarian component, component of that identity? So my approach to this is to treat it as a mass group identity. Now, any mass group identity does have some aspects that are unique to it, some specificity to it, but uh, there's a lot of commonality as well. So, for example, as you know, in my analysis, uh, particularly when I'm dealing with the subnational dimension, um, something like critical race theory was very useful to me. And the mm -hmm. parallels with race relations in the United States was something I leaned on quite heavily, but only where the subnational dimension is concerned. Where sectarian identity on the doctrinal dimension is concerned, obviously critical race theory is completely irrelevant. Um, so there is that dimension, but it's not always uh, relevant. It's not always the driver of sectarian dynamics. So in some cases, in some instances, clearly there's a doctrinal dimension. Clearly it's a question of accepting doctrinal uh, difference. Um, but in many instances, that's not the, the, the problem at all. So if you look at places mm -hmm. like Lebanon or Iraq, it's far more a question of sectarian identity at the national and subnational level, where 
uh, considerations of class come into it, where considerations of national authenticity come into it, rather than considerations of doctrinal otherness. So even sectarian othering differs in how, it's, in how it takes place. It differs fundamentally from one dimension to another. And we need to figure out which aspect of sectarian identity is primarily in play or is most relevant in order to understand the uh, relevance, uh, if at all, of uh, doctrinal issues and doctrinal incompatibility. I, I like that in the book, you know, you, you don't frame it around the usual terms uh, by, in, way, in the way these things are usually studied. So typically you would have the primordialist against the instrumentalist, and you acknowledge that, but you dismiss it very quickly and just move on, which I think is a healthy step. Walk us through a little bit then about how do you start thinking about the way you go from the availability of these identities to them becoming something which is so important in places like Iraq or Lebanon or Syria? What are the mechanisms that you really highlight uh, by which these identities really start to matter as opposed to other identities? So in the book, I do touch on pre-modern and early modern examples sort of relating to Safavid uh, Iranian competition and the like, but the bulk of the case material, of course, is from the era of the nation state. And so uh, a lot of what comes out in the book relates to functions of state building, distribution of, of resources in a national setting, the way that the nation state cages uh, uh, populations and sort of territorializes these identities. So, I mean, you can have a, 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 let's say, a Shiri identity, but you can also have a Lebanese Shiri identity, so a more territorialized identity, whereby the drivers of sectarian competition uh, within that are related to the nation state and issues relating to the nation state, be it national history or power distributions or hierarchies of power within the nation state and the like. So in terms of how they gain uh, um, uh, the relevance that they've gained in recent years, the last two chapters deal with that, particularly, uh, specifically the uh, sort of um, the years after 2003. And the point that I make in, in that, when I'm addressing that, is that these were quite exceptional circumstances in the history of sectarian relations, particularly the modern history of sectarian relations. These are quite extraordinary circumstances since right. 2003. And they do relate fundamentally, I think, if I'm going to summarize it into a bullet point, into the way that uh, um, 2003 and then later on 2011 uh, disturbed and challenged uh, pre-existing hierarchies of power and, and, and the balance of power between sect-centric actors. Um, and the book also goes into where these sect-centric sect actors emerged from and where the culture of sect-centricity emerged from. And again, that in the case of Iraq, in the case of Lebanon, in the case of Bahrain, in the case of uh, Syria, revolves around state policy and how the state dealt with sectarian multiplicity uh, uh, in terms of distribution of political office, of political rights, and the like. Now, you know, you, you make a point of this, I think, very effectively early on in the book that this is not an Iraq book, even though that's what you're best known for. Um, as an Iraqi, though, when you started looking at Bahrain, at, uh, at Lebanon, at Syria, were the things that struck you about how uh, sectarian identity seemed to operate differently from what you might have expected based on your prior immersion in the, um, in the Iraqi context? I mean, of course there are differences, but honestly, I think the commonalities are far uh, uh, greater. Um, and again, it comes back to how the nation state is framed in these places. 
So the counterexample that I mention in passing in the book is a place like Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. where until very recently, questions of uh, national inclusion and exclusion did have a doctrinal dimension, um, where sort of uh, uh, sectarian relations, or to be specific in this case, uh, the othering of, of Shias, uh, had a heavy doctrinal component. It was their doctrinal otherness, in addition to whatever else, that set them apart. Whereas that doctrinal dimension you don't actually find in the, in the other cases, um, where, where uh, sort of the, the, the nation states in question are supposedly, uh, uh, ostensibly, these are civic nation states that accept plurality as a fact of life. Um, and the nation state sort of presents itself as a, uh, a sect neutral or sect blind uh, construct. Um, of course, in practice, this was never uh, as clear cut as, as all that. But that's that's the one common. That's the the main commonality I found in 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 those cases uh, in terms of how the nation state state was constructed and how sectarian plurality fit into narratives of state. And like I said, I found the counterexample to be. Uh, Saudi Arabia until recently. But it's interesting, you point out that sect blindness is not always a good thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's been massively detrimental. And here's something like critical race theory, gender studies as well was useful in uh, in this, whereby uh, blindness is not necessarily neutrality because unless you remedy the underlying structural imbalances, blindness becomes a way of perpetuating and enforcing uh, uh, these these imbalances, um, and I think this again brings us back to the problem with the term sectarianism, in that, and you still see that today in all the countries uh, uh, concerned, whereby were one to raise the issue of structural sectarian discrimination, one will be accused of being sectarian or being you know of, or, or guilty of sectarianism. Um, so whether it's in Bahrain or Syria or in Iraq today or previously before 2003, it's almost criminalized to uh, lobby or to uh, raise awareness of structural sectarian discrimination that disproportionately affects one sectarian identity. And the parallel I draw is, you know, would we ever think of calling the NAACP a racist organization for lobbying for the, for the rights of a minority uh, a specific sort of uh, uh, racial category. Um, so I think it's perfectly legitimate for uh, people to raise these issues. But again, it comes back to the, your first question about how the term sectarianism is used to vilify that um, uh, and sort of ostracize that. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about a little bit then about kind of the, the context within all of this unfolds. Um, you know, so it's, there's the two major kind of t- inflection points, uh, 1979 and 2003. I feel like uh, your book really spends a lot of time on 2003 and how that reshapes the field of sectarian dynamics. Tell us about that a little bit. How does 2003 operating across these multiple levels that you describe, how does that reshape the nature of Sunni-Shia relations then? So I think what you get in 2003 is a lot of the fears that 1979 raised uh, being realized. So I'm, I'm obviously not sort of uh, underplaying the fundamental impact of 1979. And in fact, whatever we say about 2003 is necessarily sort of uh, uh, partly at least a cumulative process uh, from 1979 onwards. But I think in, in 2003, what sets it apart is how a lot of those fears were realized. Uh, primarily in the um, in the uh, uh, sort of all complete rewriting of the balance of power within Iraq 
of uh, the balance of power between sect-centric actors and the elevation of sect-centric Shia uh, uh, political actors who, you know, have a track record of uh, that sect-centric sort of uh, political activism, raising them to the pinnacle of, of uh, political power in Iraq. And of course, this has a regional, immediately it has regional extensions um, in the form of uh, uh, Iraqi political actors' links to Iran, in the form of uh, the advantage that Iran gained after 2003 and sort of the fear of, of Iran uh, uh, spreading its influence in the region, this was a fear that was realized in the Iraqi case. And later on in Syria, we saw as well, and in, <clears throat> in Lebanon before that, and in Yemen. Um, so that international dimension, I think, sets 2003 apart from previous conflagrations with the exception of 1979. So you look at something like uh, the uprising in Bahrain in the 90s or the uprising in Syria in the 80s or in Iraq in 91, as pivotal as these events were in these individual countries, they lacked that transnational dimension. Um, it, it didn't kick off a sectarian wave, to use Daniel Byman's uh, mm -hmm. phrase. Whereas in 2003, you had that transnational dimension which blurred the lines between these various dimensions that I'm talking about. Uh, whereby an event at the national level becomes a transnational issue, uh, aided by the spread of social media and the like, of course. Um, and so you had this sort of uh, narrative emerging of a region-wide contest. What was happening in Iraq, in Iraq uh, between 2003 and 2011 was not just happening in Iraq. It had that transnational echo. Uh, and Iraq being in the state it was as a result of the invasion and the chaos that followed, um, it was it was you know a battle site uh, on an Iraqi level, but also on a, on a regional level as well. The rise of these, I think you call them something like sect-specific public spheres, um, strikes me as really important and something a little bit different from maybe previous eras. Uh, the social media, but not just social media, even the broadcast media as well, really does seem certainly since 2011, but even since 2003, to be increasingly sect-coded. Uh, absolutely. I would say this is receding now, and the book does end on uh, the last chapter sort of talks about how this is receding now, um, which again sort of brings back the question of how unique are these things, and they really are not unique. There are, certain, there are, there are clear sort of drivers there, and once these abate, so does the whole issue, uh, and it has abated somewhat in recent years. But in terms of these public spheres, yeah, absolutely. I think social media played a big role in this. Uh, and this is not restricted to sectarian dynamics. I mean, you see it in the echo chambers that dominate public discourse in your good old culture wars. Yeah, totally. uh, so yeah, something, some, something similar is going on there. But given the state of the Middle East, um, again, as a result of, of the uh, American invasion, the American-led invasion 2003, subsequently as a result of the upheaval after 2011, um, this, these echo chambers were taking place uh, with several sect-coded conflicts raging. And so solidarities were imagined along sectarian uh, categories. Uh, sympathy was extended along sectarian categories. Victimhood was imagined in sectarian categories. And you had this very pernicious, uh, I mean, you saw this in Iraq, you saw in, 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 the, in how Syria was, was framed as well and how people talked about Syria, uh, this very pernicious sort of competition of these competing sectarian victimhoods yeah. uh, were very, very divisive. Well, you have this great anecdote about, uh, about the Iraqi uh, Sunnis uh, kind of rejecting that, that, that particular victimhood uh, uh, terminology. Oh, yeah. So this was in 2012. 
Um, and I was writing something for about, uh, uh, you know, the emerging sense of Sunni victimhood and how that sort of is defining an emergent uh, Sunni identity. So I explained it with someone from the Sunni Awqaf, uh, the endowments, and I explained to him the project. And I said, you know, this is about al madlumiya Sunniya. And he stopped me there. He said, well, but, 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 you know, we don't use that word. Uh, that's the Shia's term. We use al-Aqsa' wa tahmish we don't use that, even though it's ultimately meaning the same thing. But even in that, there was that sort of sect coding, and that's how extreme the environment was. And again, it's important to note that this has changed. That was, the, as far as I'm concerned, that was the product of exceptional circumstances. It created exceptional phenomena. Um, I'm not saying they have disappeared, but they have considerably, considerably subsided uh, in recent years. Even in, uh, if you take something like anti-Iranian discourse, um, and how Iran is framed in the uh, Gulf states, for example. Mm -hmm. There was a time after 2003 and again after 2011 where the conflation between anti-Iranian anti sentiment and anti-Shiri sentiment was, if not encouraged, at least allowed. Whereas today you don't, you don't see that sort of uh, conflation to the same extent. For one reason, um, the sort of lines of contestation are nowhere near sort of those neat Sunni Shia categories. So today uh, you hear about how Iran and Qatar and Turkey are up to ABC. Um, so as, as ersatz and as fake and as constructed as these sort of demarcation lines were at the height of uh, uh, um, sectarian conflict, uh, today it, it's just, it, it cannot, I mean, it's just the, you know, the, the realities on the ground and, and the way that power alignments have reshaped just does not allow for that kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, discourse. I mean, how's it going to work if Qatar and Turkey are the bad guys as well? <laughs> I guess they'll have to be called Shiite now, like the Alawites. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that actually gets to like one of the big questions I had, which is that one of the hypotheses that comes out of the ethnic conflict literature is uh, something that I've written about, which is this notion of the, the ratcheting effect that, you know, that when you get to a certain level of of killing, of discourse, of, of civil war, it, it, it gets very difficult to ratchet back down to uh, any kind of situation which is not sect-coded. And you could almost imagine it turning into something which is, I think I use the term, as if primordialism, um, yeah. where basically you get stuck there because the hatreds become so pronounced and entrenched. Um, and yet I feel like in, in the way you're approaching this, it would seem like there would always be more of an opportunity for desectarianization or shifting over to other types of identity politics. I mean, what do you think about that, that ratcheting hypothesis? I think at heart, the ratcheting hypothesis is absolutely correct. So, for example, I remember sort of saying to myself and to others in 2006 that what's going on in Iraq is essentially a fire that needs to run out of fuel. Um, there's no sort of talking this down. Uh, it, it reached that sort of ratcheting effect was there. And you saw it again sort of in some of the years after 2011 in the Syrian conflict. But however, that's not to say that it can't ratchet back down. Um, and there's two things I'd say about this. One, uh, one thing to keep in mind about sectarian categories and sectarian uh, frames of reference, it's often forgotten that sectarian identity by its very definition and by its nature is a subsidiary identity, which is why it's difficult to, uh, for sectarian conflict to lead to a definitive break. So I came across the ratcheting effect. Uh, first time I came across it was in uh, Kaufman's work on the, um, 
uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict. Right. Um, here you have sort of ethnic categories at play. Uh, these are these are the primary identities that were that were sort of pitted against each other in that sort of master master narrative. Whereas in the in the case of sectarian conflict, you're pitting two two identities that are by definition subsidiary to either national and or Islamic uh, uh, or religious categories. So the idea of definitive break becomes a bit harder, and as a result, the uh, a possibility of ratcheting down. Uh, uh, becomes becomes more 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 likely, um, or at least potentially more likely. In the case of what we've seen in the Middle East, I mean, we we saw sort of these vacuums emerge. We saw instances of state collapse, where the relations of power could be open to fundamental contestation. As new hierarchies of power emerged, as these hierarchies of power sort of developed roots, uh, as winners and losers emerged, relatively speaking, in military terms. Uh, I think that's where we saw the ratcheting down effect. It's not, it's not necessarily creating a benign environment, but it explains the ratcheting down and the shifting of the lines of contestation and how uh, a conflict is being framed uh, compared to earlier years. So I'm with the ratcheting. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's self-evident in, in cases like Iraq and Syria where there was that ratcheting effect and it had a transnational dimension, but uh, that's not to say that it's necessarily one-way traffic. Nothing ever ends. Mm -hmm. So let, let, let me kind of, we're almost, we're almost out of time. Let me give you like the, the archetypical example of the bad use of sectarianism mm -hmm. and walk us through why you think it's bad, okay? okay. okay. This is the Shia Crescent, uh, King Abdullah's famous uh, 2004 invocation of the Shia Crescent, a dagger pointed at the heart of the Arab world. So tell us why this is wrong. Well, for one thing, I think the first mistake, and whether this is intentional or not is open to debate, but the first mistake is to conflate Iran with Shiism. Um, this, this automatically complicates sectarian relations within individual states in the Arab world. Uh, so that's, I think, the first, the first mistake. By extension, it paints a picture of a monolithic sort of Shiism that is always in solidarity and always working at uh, to the same, towards the same purpose, um, always you know sort of helmed by Iran. But of course, this is not the case. And you know, in the literature, this is this has long been you know, sort of recognized. Uh, I can't remember who who wrote this. Where where it's not you know the argument is that it's wrong to talk about the Shia world. There are Shia worlds, and they are of various proximity to Iran. They are sometimes at odds with Iran. Um, Iran is a part of that, but I mean, that relationship is anything but straightforward. Uh, but I think the biggest problem with that is assuming that the, uh, Shiism in this case is, is a monolithic block, uh, politically and religiously, um, that it traverses uh, uh, national ba boundaries and that, the, that it's sort of uh, beholden uh, to Iranian designs. Um, I think it's it's qu quite an easy case to make that that is not not uh, not not so. Um, so then, one last question then is that you know we think about this and and the book is definitely framed in this way, understandably uh, as an Arab issue. Have you thought or thought at all or looked at all about uh, transregional or transnational Shiism beyond the Arab world? when you think about how these things play out in Afghanistan or Pakistan or in Africa or the like, do you see this as, as, as something relatively similar? Is there this transnational Shia identity or do you think that these things tend to be exaggerated? 
Uh, I mean, I won't claim any expertise on Shiism in Africa or elsewhere, although I did uh, do a small study. I did a research trip uh, in Myanmar uh, to look at the Shia community in Yangon, which was really fascinating. And even there, and it's a tiny Shia community, um, even there, of course, I mean, the Iranian dimension is there. Uh, there are links. I mean, these are links that are actively fostered by Iran uh, and also vice versa. Sometimes Shia minorities actively court Iranian attention as well. But this takes sometimes takes religious forms, sometimes takes political forms, sometimes takes economic forms, sometimes takes all of the above. Um, in the case of uh, Yangon, they complained that the Iranians were not interested in them because they're too small a, small a community. So they actually wanted more, more, more Iranian attention. So look, the Iranian dimension is there. I mean, it would be foolish to deny it. And Iran does use uh, Shia identity as a, as a sort of an entry point with which to further their interests. But all I'd say in, in sort, of, uh, sort of counterbalancing that is that that's A, that they're not always successful in doing that. B, not all Shia communities as, are as receptive uh, to Iranian overtures or Iranian designs um, across, across the field. Um, I mean, look at, look at the impact of the Iranian revolution after uh, 1979, and you look at where uh, Shia radicalism sort of really took hold, and almost always it was in contexts that had a pre-existing sectarian issue in the form of uh, um, uh, Shia contestation with, with state authorities, that pre-existing issue of that nature. Um, whereas you saw Iranian designs not go very far uh, in other contexts. So Iran's, is, Iran is a factor, of course, and I think Iran has a role in international Shiism that has no parallel in Sunni communities. Uh, I mean, Turkey tries to play that role, Saudi Arabia tries to play that role, but it's, it's nowhere near analogous to the role that Iran has in, in, in call it global Shiism, if you like. Uh, but again, that needs to be better contextualized, I think, uh, in terms of how, how, they're, how, how often they're successful, why they're successful in particular contexts, and which contexts are they successful in. Okay, well, thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Fanar Haddad, uh, author of this fascinating new book, Understanding Sectarianism, just published by Hearst and uh, Oxford University Press. Uh, Fanar, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.